0: Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is December 14th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Where is the Love? Microaggression in the Emergency Department. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. Chris is an emergency physician and an assistant professor at the University of Calgary. He is also an avid Foam supporter and producer through various online outlets, including right here as a faculty member on the SGEM Hop. Welcome back to the SGEM, Chris.
1: Thank you, Ken. Nice to chat with you again.
0: Hey, did you see I got my Cybertruck? Are you serious? Yes, unfortunately, it is the 118th scale model of the (laughs) Cybertruck. But Hey, that's the best I can do right now until my real Cybertruck comes in 2024. Fingers crossed.
1: I'm going to throw a rock at it. I'm sorry. I have to it. i
0: <laughs> I'm still planning to wrap it in black and put big Batman symbols on it to even add to the feeling that my wife has expressed many times. Ken, that is so ugly. I'll never drive it. Oh, she's on to me. Mission accomplished.
1: <laughs> you just put a bat symbol right on the bat logo right on the hood.
0: Oh, right on the hood. Yeah, oh, that'd be so sweet. But we're not here to talk about Elon Musk and my Cybertruck. I've been waiting four years. We're here to talk about a <gasps> odd off the press paper. So give us a case.
1: A 57-year-old Chinese woman presents to the emergency department with chest pain. She speaks some English, but it is her second language. It's a very busy day, and you proceed to ask her questions in rapid succession. You roll your eyes when you must repeat yourself a few times and ask in a louder and louder voice in order to get a response.
0: Well, patients' experiences of care are associated with health outcomes and may impact perspectives of emergency department care and patient recovery process. Perceptions of discrimination in healthcare are linked to delays in seeking medical treatment, non-inherence to clinical recommendations, and mistrust of clinicians and the healthcare system in general. Now, we've looked at one of these issues, and that is with deaf and hard of hearing patients in the ED on SGEM 383.
1: Microaggressions are discriminatory behaviors that may be subtle or unintentional, but may disempower affected individuals, leading to differential care and worse healthcare outcomes. Discrimination Implicit bias and microaggressions are common in healthcare encounters involving persons from marginalized groups.
0: Microaggression and discrimination towards patients have been studied in other healthcare settings, but there's really been little research done specific to the emergency department. The ED is a unique part of the healthcare system due to its inherent chaotic environment, certainly we have time constraints, and a lack of prior patient-staff interaction. All right, I think we've set the table, Chris. What's the clinical question for today's episode?
1: How can patient perceptions of microaggressions that occur during an ED visit inform potential interventions and prevent future occurrences?
0: And what's the reference?
1: Patient perceptions of microaggressions and discrimination toward patients during emergency department care by Punches et al., Academic Emergency Medicine, December 2023.
0: And we don't tend to pull any punches when it comes to our critical appraisals. Out. So as this is a qualitative study, and I'd like to express we do not do enough qualitative studies on the SGEM, and I am actively seeking out more qualitative studies because I think they can really contribute to our knowledge base. But when we do qualitative studies, we used a modified PICO question. We we changed that pico a little bit. So this is just a peak. So what was the population?
1: Just a little peak. No oh I love it. The population was adult English speaking patients visiting one of two urban emergency departments in a Midwest U.S. city.
0: And the I is for interest. So what was the interest we were looking for?
1: We were exploring patient experiences of discrimination during their ED visit.
0: And then the C stands for context. So in what context?
1: The context was improving patient care and reducing microaggressions from ED staff.
0: All right. So this is an SGM hot off the press episode. And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Lorne Sutherland. Lorne is an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Ohio State. Her research interests include clinical process improvements in the ED and implementation science, and she focuses on the care of vulnerable populations, most often older adults, oh my friend Chris Carpenter will like that, and other lacking capacity or capabilities. Welcome to the SGEM, Dr. Sutherland.
2: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to have a chance to talk with you both.
0: Ken, I got to interrupt right now because
1: you def- the way that you said Ohio State University is too funny. Because if if Lauren's from anywhere around there, it is the Ohio State University.
0: Oh, is that how it's supposed to be? The Ohio State?
1: Oh, well, I like the way you said it, but they definitely they all come from the Ohio State University.
0: Oh, okay. I wasn't was not familiar with that, so go Buckeyes. guys.
2: It is so important that the, the the T is capitalized and it's really etched into the buildings too. Really? State University. Mm-hmm.
0: This is why having, the, having one of the authors on the show is so good because we get into the depth of the knowledge uh, that we wouldn't get just by reading the paper. Well, let's get back to the show here. I'm very excited because there's a Lauren who works on the SGEM faculty, Lauren Westerfer, and she too is interested in implementation science. So the bar has been set really high for any Laurens that come on the show. I hope you're ready to meet that challenge, Dr. Lauren Sutherland.
2: Lauren Westerfer is amazing, and um, I love her implementation research too. So I'm certain she has already surpassed me in knowledge. But uh, as you both know very well, there is so much evidence that's not being used and applied to practice that there is a great need for even more Laurens to join implementation science.
0: So, if you're a Lauren out there looking to do research, we are going to encourage you to do more and more research. I am a huge fan of Laurens, by the way. But, anyways, your study uses a mixed method, sequential explanatory approach whereby you collect quantitative data on experiences of discrimination using a DMS tool, followed by qualitative data through a semi-structured interview. I need a little explanation. I'm sure some of our listeners will need a little explanation on what that really means.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I don't think anybody sits down and thinks, you know what I'd like to do next? A mixed methods, sequential explanatory approach. That's, that's the key right now. Bingo. But what happens when you're designing a project is as you come up with your clinical question, and our question was, are our patients experiencing microaggressions during our clinical care? This was really down to earth for us. And how is it affecting them as uh, healthcare receivers and their health? So once we knew what our question was, we had to think, how do we determine that? And the obvious reason, first thing was, should we just ask them? Mind-blowing, right?
0: Whoa! I think you needed. I, I I think you needed a warning there. You know, some people might be driving a vehicle or walking and have fallen over when they said, "You know, how can we figure out?" And obviously, this is very sarcastic, but how can we figure out? And I'm just spitballing here. Um, what I'm thinking out loud: How could we figure out what patients really prefer, or desire, or want? Ask them.
2: Yeah, and we. We recognize that this is a sensitive subject. We'll be asking people about experiences they've had uh, when they're vulnerable as a patient, because it is vulnerable to be a patient, no matter what clinical setting you're in. And so we didn't want to ask them, hey, are you, did you have any bad experiences? Did Anybody say anything wrong to you while they were in the emergency department still receiving care? That seemed like a a conflict of interest there and we wouldn't get the information and they wouldn't feel safe. So our thought was to talk to patients and ask if we could call them back for an interview later. But then we also know, as anyone who's done Mernstrum research, if you're trying to call people back for research information, you're going to get a lot of loss to follow-up. A lot of people see an odd number on their phone and won't answer. And so we thought, well, let's get a little bit of information while we have them in the ER. So then at least we'll have something in case no one wants to answer questions in an interview. And looking at lots of different ways to ask about microaggressions and discrimination, we came across this discrimination in medical setting scale and then adapted it to the emergency department. And that gave us a quick quantitative scale that we could do that were like that they could fill out without someone on the other side of the curtain hearing them say, oh, yeah, this person did this. Uh, we still have some curtain rooms and, uh, chairs, even though we try to see people out of nice, beautiful ED rooms, but we wanted them to have the privacy and the ability to respond the the way that really showed their feelings. And so once we realized that we were going to have this two-pronged approach, then we could sort out as a team, how are we going to analyze this? How can we make sure that our interview then also goes over the same questions that the quantitative data does?
1: Thanks, Lauren. Can you give us the conclusions to your paper?
2: I could read you the conclusions from the paper, but honestly, what struck me the most is that I learned more about my own research biases. I went into the study on biases and microaggressions with some preconceived biases that I didn't know about. I thought we would hear a lot of stories of, of gender and racial discrimination, and some of that occurs in the ED, definitely. But many of our participants felt like they were judged on other factors, which... I hadn't really thought about before, including their appearance, their age, either people thought I was too young or too old. As a geriatric researcher, I should have expected ageism to show up. Additionally, the patients were overall very understanding of the pressures of the ED and attributed many of the comments to people being overworked or overstressed, which was a kind way to say that we get a lot more leeway from our patients than I would have expected. Finally, the quantitative data didn't always match up to their qualitative interviews. Sometimes on the Discrimination Medical Settings survey, they endorsed discrimination, and the survey clearly said, on this ED visit. But when interviewed, they were recalling past visits and past healthcare experiences. Our team interpreted that as meaning that these past experiences colored their perceptions of future healthcare experiences and definitely stayed with them. Many patients also endorsed avoiding or not wanting to go back to an ER when they had a bad experience there.
0: Chris, this is one of the reasons I love having an author on the show, because just asking that question about the conclusions to the paper, and she unpacked a whole bunch of information that isn't in the paper. Now, we still have to get the author's conclusions because that's part of our structured critical appraisal, Lauren. So if you could, could you read the conclusions that your authorship came up with, and then we'll move on into the checklist? Of course.
2: Patients attributed microaggressions to many factors beyond race and gender, including age, socioeconomic status, and environmental pressures in the emergency department. Of those who endorsed moderate to significant discrimination via the survey response during their recent emergency department visit, most of them described historical experiences of discrimination during their interview. Previous experiences of discrimination may have lasting effects on patient perceptions of current health care. System and clinician investment and in patient rapport. And satisfaction is important to prevent negative expectations for future encounters and to counteract those already in place.
0: So what we're going to do now is we're going to go through a special checklist that's been developed for qualitative research. So, Chris, you ready to go? Let's do it. Okay. Was there a clear statement of the aims of this research? Yes, there was. Is a qualitative methodology appropriate? Absolutely. Was the research design appropriate to address the aims of the research? Yes. Was the recruitment strategy appropriate to the aims of the research? It was. Was the data collected in a way that addressed the research issue? Yes, it was. Has the relationship between the researcher and participant been adequately considered?
1: This one I'm not completely sure about.
0: All right, and how about ethical issues? Have they been taken into consideration?
1: Yes, it follows the correct checklist.
0: Do you think the data analysis was sufficiently rigorous? Yes. Is there a clear statement of findings? There is. And the final question, how valuable is the research?
1: I think this research is particularly valuable in that it is emergency department specific as opposed to other similar research within this field.
0: All right, so let's get into the results section. They approached 94 potential participants with 52 consenting to participate and 48 of the 52, so 92%, completed that DMS scale. There were 30 participants who completed a follow-up interview Of those completing the DMS scale, 26, or half of them, reported some moderate or significant discrimination during this ED visit.
1: Their data was broken up into quantitative and qualitative data, and we'll go through both of those starting with the quantitative data.
0: Yeah, so the quantitative data used this DMS score, and so that's uh, for discrimination in the emergency department, and that score ranged from 0 to 15, and in their results, a median of 3. And I will include the DMS scale in the show notes so you can look through it, but it's a 5-point Likert scale, which includes 7 questions, including asking participants uh, being treated with less courtesy than other people were treated.
1: The second question was, were you treated with less respect than other people were?
0: Or did you receive poorer service than others?
1: Or did a doctor or nurse act as if they thought you were not smart?
0: Did a doctor or nurse act as if they were afraid of you?
1: Or did a doctor or nurse act as if they were better than you?
0: And then the seventh question that people had to answer on this five-point Likert scale was, Did you feel like the doctor or nurse was not listening to what you were saying?
1: So 33% of participants had a DMS score of zero. 39% experienced some or moderate discrimination, which was a DMS score of three to nine. And 14% of participants experienced significant discrimination, which was a DMS of 10 or more.
0: Lauren, do you want to jump in here and give a comment on the quantitative aspect of your research?
2: Yes, Ken. A few things that struck me about this discrimination medical setting scale was that 20% of participants reported that their healthcare team member acted as if they were afraid of the person, which would be really damaging to a doctor-patient relationship. Uh, Not unexpected was that we got poor marks for listening, as over half reported that the doctor or nurse was not listening, at least sometimes, to what they were saying.
0: Okay, so let's get to the qualitative aspect of your data. There were five main themes that emerged from the qualitative data, and we'll go through those five things. The first thing was clinician behavior, and this was about communication and empathy. Patients describe the staff's positive and negative behavior, such as communication, body language, and thoroughness of care. Positive behavior could include items such as frequent communication, reassurance, privacy, and validation of concerns. On the other side, negative behaviors could include rudeness, unprofessionalism, dismissiveness, and microaggressions.
2: Yeah, Ken, I would like to say that we had five conclusions because you like the number five, but I really wasn't thinking of you when we did the thematic analysis. (sighs) I'm glad it worked out for you, though.
0: It all worked out in the end.
2: Um, a lot of participants specifically commented on good behaviors, such as remembering that the doctor and nurse sat down with them or feeling like they really focused on the story the patient was telling. Some of the bad behaviors were often coming from assumptions. They assumed I was opioid seeking instead of even letting me finish my sentence or asking how I manage my pain currently at home.
1: Right. I think that before I go on, I, I got to say that this is like, tremendously valuable information this might be qualitative research which we don't do enough of and uh, all the having your input is super helpful i think um, particularly for just reminding you of how to practice patient-centered care which i think we kind of lose as we practice further and further into our careers so the second theme was the emotional response to healthcare team actions Participants described positive interactions with clinicians which reassured confidence in their emergency department visit and willingness to return for future health care. Negative interactions in which patients felt disturbed, shocked, or vulnerable were often related to previous healthcare visits and made patients question whether they should leave the emergency department prior to completion of their care.
2: Yes, and I think when we discussed this some of the patients were telling us stories about prior visits and saying, this is why I'm never going to go back to hospital D again. And obviously, what we didn't get in our cohort was the people who are never coming back to our hospital because they had a bad experience. So that's one limitation of having a single site study. I don't know all the people we've driven away from our ER, but anyone who's worked a shift in the emergency department has witnessed an upset patient leave the emergency department rather than continue their care. And patients who had these prior negative interactions did not want to return to that emergency department. And some mentioned trying to avoid care because of fear of being mistreated or looked down on for asking for help with their care. One example that really struck me was a Muslim woman who was getting an EKG done in a triage bay and so was feeling very exposed. While the test was being done, another male healthcare team member walked right in without asking, ignoring her, and talked over her head to the text during the EKG. So there she was feeling exposed and ignored as if her opinion or comfort didn't matter. And since then, she tries never to say chest pain to a provider because she doesn't want to have another EKG again.
0: Yeah, hearing stories can be so powerful, you know, that narrative. And we are creatures that like to tell stories. And so again, the qualitative research really coming through. Number three was perceived reasons for discrimination. In this area, participants... Discussed their perception of being treated differently by previous ED clinicians. Reasons for differential treatment varied by age, gender identity, race, physical appearance, health literacy, chronic conditions, and disabilities.
2: Uh, To understand this theme, you have to understand that our sampling method wasn't randomized. We used something called purposive sampling, where we were trying to gather a breadth of opinion instead of the mean or average opinion. And so we actually made a sampling table where we broke down age ranges by uh, we had uh, millennials, Gen X, baby boomers, and we randomized each day to first searching for someone from one of the age categories, the gender identity categories, the race and ethnicity categories. So each day our research team member, Evans, who did an amazing job, would look through the ED list and try to find someone who fit all those four categories. And if he couldn't, he'd approach someone who fit three or hit fit two. And so that gave us this breadth of people. So when we have this result that people felt like they were discriminated against for a lot of different reasons, part of that is because we sampled people. One thing we didn't include in our proposed sampling was uh, physical disabilities. But it just so happened that we did uh, get had several patients to participate who had recognizable physical disabilities, such as in a lower extremity amputation that were visible to other people. And they endorsed feeling like they were dismissed or treated differently. Also patients endorsed feeling that, um, well, I'll just I'll, I'll just summarize it by a quote from one patient. Um, this person was a white non-binary person who talked about physical appearance. And if I may paraphrase, they said, I looked probably rather disheveled because I'd been sick. I hadn't shaved my face in three to four days, and I had a fever, so I'm sure my hair was oily. I probably looked really rough and came off as somebody of a low socioeconomic class. That person felt that they were treated differently because they weren't as polished as they normally were in their physical appearance. Having to rush to the ED from work or in the night and not being able to make themselves feel presentable, people felt that they were judged for that.
0: Um, can you clarify, uh, Did uh, on your uh, table, did it actually say Gen X, Gen Y, OK Boomer, or, or was it actually ages?
2: Uh, we left off the OK, but yes, that's in Table 1.
1: The
0: environmental pressures in the emergency
1: department was the next theme. So participants described the setting and general atmosphere of their emergency department encounter, which often provided context to the clinician behaviors described in the interview. They often noted long wait times and busy staff when describing negative emergency department experiences, and sometimes perceived poor care was due to emergency department environmental demands.
2: Yes, some of the negative experiences were during waiting room waits, and I'm sure there's not an emergency department in the country who in the summer of 2021 didn't have some long waiting room times. Also, triage of the waiting room is a place where there's a clear element of judgment as we try to use algorithms to justify who goes first and who goes next. But when you have 40 people waiting, sometimes it comes down to the squeaky wheel or who looks more sick to the nurse. So it's a place that is almost set up for our unconscious biases and microaggressions to occur. So I was not surprised to hear stories that occurred in the waiting room. But on the flip side, many participants noted that the busy emergency department setting was a contributor to people being rude or not listening, and they brushed it off mentally as they were just busy.
0: So it wasn't just uh, 2021. Last week, our tertiary care center posted their wait time for time to be seen by a physician, and it was 19 and a half hours
2: Yes, we are seeing a spike of flu and COVID again, and our wait times have gone way up.
0: It's just incredibly, incredibly busy, and I feel so bad for all of those people. I mean, I'm not at my best when I'm sick, but can you imagine being sick and then having to wait hours and hours and hours for care? You can see how frustrating that would be. The fifth and final point was about patients being hesitant to complain. Some participants considered filing a complaint or had previously filed a discrimination complaint, while others had concerns about filing a complaint. Concerns about filing a complaint included not wanting to identify staff members, not feeling that the complaint would be acted upon, or feeling that their medical care would suffer if they brought up a concern.
2: Yes. One man said, and I'm going to paraphrase again, why would I file a complaint? Whoever I'm complaining to works with the person I'm reporting and has no reason to believe me over them. It's not going to do any good.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a, a concern. And what do you do about that, Lauren? How do you encourage people to feel that the process will be honorable and taken seriously by your healthcare system?
2: I think that things we can do is give people timeframes and let them know. I'm going to bring this up through the right channels to the right people and address your problem. And I will get back to you within a week on what we're doing to fix this, to make sure it doesn't happen again. Because some other people would say, well, I fell before, but I never heard anything back. So I assume they did nothing. So that's a takeaway there is that if you do have patient safety complaints or complaints about microaggressions or discrimination, make sure to get back to the person and let them know what's being done.
0: Yeah. You need to have, uh, a process and a formal process and follow that process and close the loop, get back to them. And even if you just get back to them to acknowledge that the complaint has been received, so they know it's registered the whole investigation, because depending on what the complaint is about, doesn't need to happen immediately. Uh, I was the chief of a department for 10 years and chief of staff for 10 years. But as soon as I got the complaint, I made sure to follow our process and get back to that person immediately and identify that we have received it. We take that seriously and we will follow this process and then give them the time frame for that process to evolve and be completed. Well, it's time to talk a little nerdy. Yes, my favorite part of the podcast. You had five themes. Guess how many questions we're gonna have for you, Lauren?
2: Ooh, is it five?
0: Winner, winner, chicken dinner. All right, so let's go through those five. The first thing is about external validity. Your patients were recruited from two large urban EDs in the United States. How do you think your results would reflect smaller centers other parts of the United States or even other parts of the world.
2: So I think this relates back to our, our purposive sampling process and the types of people we pick to interview because we sampled for breadth of experience and for diversity. We can't say this is an average experience or it can be generalized to whatever a percent of ED patients have an experience like this. We can only say that these events happen in the emergency department and they probably happen in most emergency departments, at least in the United States. Uh, experiences may differ in small emergency departments who have shorter wait times, um, maybe more homogenous areas where the population do- doesn't have as much diversity. Or it could differ in other parts of the world where there may be culturally different doctor-patient relationships.
0: Uh, yeah, I can reflect back on my own practice and going from small uh, rural centers to large urban centers. There are different patient expectations and they are different patient populations. If you've seen the Glockenflecken videos, you know that there is a farmer pain scale. If you see a farmer and the sun is warming the earth, oh my goodness, badness is about to happen. And I've traveled to other countries and made comments with regards to presentations and people have looked confused. And that's because there are different expectations with that doctor patient relationship uh, when people come to the emergency department. So I think, well, there can be some general themes. There probably are some contextual uh, local uh, things that happen as well.
1: Okay, the next question is about past experiences. So you often mentioned that patients' perceptions of discrimination were based on past encounters and not the current emergency department visit. How did you as the authors interpret this?
2: Well, first I have to give a shout out to my co-author, Dr. Brittany Punches, who identified this. She and this was part of the advantage of having this mixed methods design. She had a big spreadsheet of people's discrimination scale responses and then their interview responses and said, wait, some of these don't match up. And one of the things we had done is to prevent the interviewer from coming into the interview with a bias. They, The interviewer didn't look at the discrimination medical setting scale right before coming in or adjust their interview based on these scale responses. So if we do this again, we may try to do that so we can tease this out a little bit more and then ask people specifically if they're thinking about their index emergency department to visit or other times in the emergency department. But I think bad experience in healthcare, or even as we know with microaggressions, multiple microaggressions add up to big bad experiences. And that is internalized and it affects our stress levels and it affects our willingness to our willingness, and our understanding of future healthcare needs.
0: I've already told you that the talk nerdy section is my favorite section of the podcast. The methodology section is my favorite part of the paper. So I want to dig into a little bit of the methods here. So this is looking at data collection and sample size. Can you walk us through an example of how the data was actually collected? And do you think the sample collected was adequately reflective of the general population?
2: Yeah, so again, we use this proposed sampling. So we weren't reflective of the general population, but we are reflective of patients who do come to the emergency department. And the data was collected by a research team member going down to the emergency department and talking with people in a quiet private space. So not in the middle of the triage bay or the waiting room. And then asking them if they were interested in talking about a study, because one thing we developed when we thought about this study is we didn't want to traumatize anybody. Asking people to talk about bad experiences and, and potentially traumatic experiences, that was one of our main issues is how do we do this in a way that doesn't cause recurrent trauma? And so we tried to do it in a private way in a very open way and allow them to stop at any time. And we did have some people say no. I'm not interested in talking about that topic. Our sample size, when you are doing a qualitative study, you think about how many different experiences will you need to have to be able to generalize off the data you're given. And so we actually built our sampling strategy and our sample size thinking that we wanted at least three people in each of the buckets we had made. So if I had an American Indian, Alaskan native who was male and uh, Gen X, then that was one in each of those check boxes, And we tried to sample until we got at least five checks in each box. So then at least we had some people with those characteristics. And I wasn't relying on one individual to give their opinion and represent everybody who had similar aspects to them.
0: So when you talked about buckets, that made me think of a song about crab in the bucket. Or were these crabby people that you put in the buckets because they wanted to complain?
2: Yes. And that's actually another problem when you're doing getting, any getting sort of qualitative research. Are you only getting responses from people who have skin in the game? And that could be people who want to talk about it, want to complain where this is a major issue for them. And there's not a good way to stop that. What we did do is we kept a screening log so we could compare the people who declined to participate demographically to the people who did participate. And it was a a pretty close mix. So we weren't getting only people with certain characteristics and people of other characteristics were declining.
0: Yeah, because I can see the tension between wanting to get a breadth of experiences not just getting the average experience, but also not doing such selection bias that you're only getting people that are naturally complaining. Yes. And so uh, that there's some tension between those um, competing aims.
2: Uh, yes. If everyone had joined just like me and then uh, white, cisgendered females who were millennials, we would not have had a, as much interesting information. But I do like to complain. So if you're doing a qualitative study and want a complainer, count me in. The
1: fourth question is about non-English speaking patients. So one of the inclusion criteria was the ability to speak conversational English. How do you address this significant limitation for discussing discrimination in non-English speaking populations?
2: Yes, this was a big limitation that we talked about. And because this was an unfunded study, and none of our team members spoke other languages fluently enough for interviewing them about a sensitive topic, we weren't able to hire translators to be a part of the study team. However, if this ever goes to a point where we can get more funding, investigate it more thoroughly, I would wanna hire some medical translator time. At my institution, we see many patients and the most common languages for translation are Spanish, Somali, and Arabic.
1: Yeah, I, I'd say that one of the one of the places I work at this just made me think a lot about this topic was that during COVID. It became normal to use a language line, which I don't know if you use a language line, but it's a just a having a, having somebody who's a translator who is not a family member. It cha- really changed the game because a lot of the time, I would even find that if you had a family member translate versus. A independent party translate, you'd get different information. And, and so this study being done with a translator who's completely not, you know, not the interviewer at all and not related to the person being interviewed, I feel like you'd get some really valuable information.
2: Yes, I agree. We We have the language line interpreters too, and they are wonderful.
0: So the fifth and final question we had in the nerdy section was, Lauren, what's next? Where is this research headed in the space of microaggression? And do you plan to be part of that research?
2: Uh, Personally, uh, this is a passion of mine. I think this is incredibly important for us to learn more about what we are doing and how we are helping or hurting our patients in different ways. It's not my main area of research. As I said, this was an unfunded project. But we're hoping to turn some of these stories into educational curriculums. And take what we've learned from this and be able to put together some vignettes or some other way to show people, hey, you might have thought this was okay, but it can come across in this way. Another vignette that struck me was a person who was being transferred from a smaller ED to a larger tertiary care center. And she said before she left, the doctor came up and told her, I have to transfer you because I can't take care of people like you here.
0: Yeah, you could see how that would be uh, a large potential for being misinterpreted.
2: Yeah, there's a better way to say that, right? And But you can easily see someone walking by and, and doing that.
0: Yeah, having that said out loud back to the person who actually said it or having trainees hear that story. I mean, that could be very powerful for changing the way you bring up information or provide information to the patients you're trying to care for. All right, that ends the nerdy section. It's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusion.
1: We agree with the author's conclusions.
0: Chris, can you give us an SGEM bottom line? Yeah. Patients
1: perceive discrimination in the emergency department for many reasons. We should address our emergency department culture and our individual biases to help reduce patient perceptions of discrimination and improve our care.
0: And how about that case you presented at the beginning of the show of the Chinese woman who was having chest pain?
1: Yeah, so rather than asking the patients quickly like we often do and then making our voice even louder, it's not that they can't hear us. We slow down, speak in a normal tone of voice, and enunciate our words clearly. This helps collect a clearer history, but you're still having a bit of difficulty, so you find a Chinese-speaking translator service to collect the history more accurately and explain things to the patient so they actually understand what's going on.
0: So, Chris, how are you going to take this qualitative study and apply it clinically?
1: Well, it really makes us aware of the environmental pressures and our own biases, which will allow us to provide better care for our patients with fewer microaggressions and discrimination.
0: It's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and last week's winner was Guilherme Rezner. He knew that approximately 20% of Americans live in rural areas. What's the question this week? Who
1: coined the term microaggression?
0: Oh, well, that's a good one. Uh, If you know who coined the term microaggression, then send an email to thesgem at gmail.com. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize.
1: Now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this episode on patient perceptions of microaggressions and discrimination in the emergency department? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP or X them, I guess. What questions do you have for Lauren and her team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency
0: Medicine. Also, don't forget, those of you who are subscribers to AEM can head over to the AEM homepage for CME credits on this podcast and article. Well, thanks, Chris, for doing the show. Hopefully, next time we talk, I will actually have my Cybertruck.
1: That would be amazing. I just remembered I actually put myself on that list, too. I don't think I need it, but I'm on that list.
0: And, Lauren, I understand before you go, you want to do a dad joke.
2: I do. Thanks again for talking with me about this important topic. Are you ready for this?
0: Oh, I am always ready for dad jokes.
2: Why did the skeptic suffer from high blood pressure?
0: Lauren, I don't know. Why did the skeptic suffer from high blood pressure?
2: Because he was taking everything with
0: a grain of salt. Love it. Next shift. Next shift. I'm using that one. All right. There's only one thing left to do, and that's for uh, Lauren to read the SGM tagline. I understand that you are from Minnesota originally, and so I'm looking for you to read the SGM tagline in your best Minnesotan accent.
2: Okay. Here I go. So, remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, eh? Even if you heard it on The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine.
0: For sure, buddy. Oh, for sure.